This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here. The name is Paul Revere. And here's a guy that says if the web is clear. Can Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Our millions of listeners will remember that earlier this year in season two of our podcast, we were joined by Cricket Goodall, executive director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association, and Mary McManus-Guba, daughter of legendary ABC sports host Jim McKay, to talk about the Preakness. This upcoming Saturday, October 19th, was what was formerly known as Maryland Million Day at Laurel Park, located just about halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It was renamed as Jim McKay Maryland Million Day in 2008, following the death of the man who did so much to bring it into being. Although, as you will hear, Jim's wife, Margaret, had a significant role in making it happen as well. So join us as Cricket Goodall and Mary McManus-Guba talk about Maryland's Day at the Races and Maryland racing in general. First, we're joined by Cricket Goodall. Cricket is, as I said, the executive director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association, as well as the executive director of Jim McKay Maryland Million Day. One of the things that has always struck me about Maryland racing is its seeming outsized influence in our sport for a state of its size. Cricket spoke to us about the rich legacy of horse racing in Maryland and how, to this day, decisions made years ago that sprung out of that rich legacy have preserved the sport in the old line state. So, Cricket, you mentioned, you know, Maryland is a small state and it's a, you know, if you look at the eastern seaboard, let's say it's a smaller circuit. I wouldn't say a small circuit, but I would say a smaller circuit. And yet, you know, when I, you know, think about racing in Maryland, you know, some of the names that just immediately come to mind King Leatherberry, Gray Emotion, Dick Dick Dutro, Buddy Delp, Bel Air Stud, Sagamore Racing, Fair Hill. It, it almost seems as if for a smaller circuit, Maryland has an outsized presence in terms of the people that have 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 you know worked in the sport and the the operations that have influenced the sport. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. I mean, I think that's why. To be honest with you, I think that's why. We've been able to survive the, you know, bumps and ups and downs the last few years with the slots debate and all that. I think that the horse, Maryland has produced and continues to produce very, very good horsemen and families, generations of good horsemen. I mean, the, the Maryland Horse Breeders is a good example. It was started in 1929, the first kind of, you know, breeders association of its kind with a mission to breed good horses. And that would, the, the, these, men who started it were horsemen they they fox hunted they had steeplechase horses they you know they were well-rounded horsemen and appreciated horses for what they were they also understood the impact on the on the land many much of the preserved land in Maryland especially the northern counties Baltimore County Carroll and Harford the land that's preserved is due to fox hunting clubs that needed territory. So they formed, you know, conservancies. One's called Valley's Planning Council, which which actually preserves the valley that Sagamore is, is in. And and that 
particular conservancy, the Valley's Planning Council, was way ahead of its time. In the 50s, started working on preserving land that now is very, very vulnerable. And, you know, back in the 50s, they knew it was going to be vulnerable, but it, it's just amazing to think how far ahead of their time they were because it would be malls and townhouses if they had not put the put the regulation, you know, the the implementation of the saving. People had the opportunity to leave and go to Pennsylvania when things got challenging here in Maryland a few years ago. They didn't do that. They Horses moved. Some people moved their horses to Pennsylvania to take advantage of certain programs, but the farms did not get up and move, and they stuck it out, and things are coming back, but that was because they were invested here, not, not only financially, but families. I mean, Multi, the Bonifaces are multi-generation. The Ponzas are multi-generation. Um, you know, you can just go on and on. And they're the Merrimans and the Vosses and the and it's just they're really, really good horsemen. And I think that that shows in their ability to foster young people or um, reward reward people well. So all those successful trainers, they stay here for a reason. Maryland has proven to be a springboard for many legendary careers in our sport. They do well here for a reason. And then you look at, again, some of the jockeys that have started here. It was mainly because the trainers were willing to give them a chance here. And then they were successful, and some of them stayed and some of them didn't. But I believe they wouldn't have had quite that same chance if they tried to start in other states. It's You know, you can sort of look at the history, especially of the jockeys that have started here and, and gone out, but, tra- but trainers as well. Um, it's just a really good... It's just a really good learning opportunity for for horsemen. If you if that's what you want to be, you know, and it's a it's a it's hard work and it's a, a devoted lifestyle, but there are some really great horsemen here. Well, I know. Uh, uh, first of all, I'm a Bostonian, so Chris McCarron is, and then and the McCarrons, his his brother too, yeah, Greg. Yeah. You know, those are names that I you know I know Chris got his start. You know, I, I would say first came to renown down there. Rosie Napravnik, I think uh, Dickie Small gave her. Her start, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He he started a lot of jockeys actually, because Dickie was he was he 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 marched to his own drummer, you know, and he did not he did things differently than some people, but he was very successful and he was willing to give young people a chance and take the time to teach them and and have them learn. And and you're right. I mean, the the names. I mean, Julie Crone, Kent Zormo, Edgar Prado. I mean, Edgar's back, but I just when you, and you can look at, you can really look at the Maryland Million list of of sort of jockeys that have won over the years because they were all all the good ones were winning over the years. And I remember when Julie Crone was here, and she was at the top of her game and winning on Maryland Million Day. And our sponsors, that's who they wanted to meet. That was their biggest their biggest wish that day was that they get to take a picture with Julie Crone, which is I mean, not that that uh, surprises me, but I just, it was, and it was easy. It was great. She loved to do that kind of thing. So it worked really well. As you can imagine from someone who has not only the responsibilities Cricket has, but the lifelong love affair she's had with horses, she's very passionate about promoting involvement in and understanding of our sport. Now with the horse breeders, we're trying to help young people understand, though, that there are careers in the horse industry other than just you know, being a vet or because a lot of people that love to ride and love to groom, love to take care of horses, don't know that you can actually also find a place where you can get a stable income. And and so that's part of what we do here with our foundation is, is try to educate young people about, 
you know, there's a way to still touch horses and love horses, but have a regular job and get a paycheck and health health care and all those good things. Well, you know, you brought up the education and outreach, and I wanted to expand on that a little bit because, look, you know, at the time we're doing this interview, the situation out at Santa Anita is fresh in everyone's mind. And, of course, whenever horse racing comes up in the national press, you know, you can count on it's probably, unless it's Kentucky Derby Day or Preakness Day or the Belmont, or, you know, you can count on it's probably not a good story. So, uh, you know, when I talk with a lot of my guests about education and outreach, how do we bring people into the game? How do we, how do we, but it's more like, how do we get people to understand, first of all, how, how much love people who are in the sport have for the horses and how much they do to take care of them? So I would imagine that part of the education outreach for you has to be overcoming some of those preconceptions that people have. Is that fair to say? I think more and more probably, but, but the, the, going back to what I said earlier, if, we're, if you have kids who are, you know, have been around horses, loved horses, and they want to figure out a way to make a living, they know that they're they're on the inside. They know that's that's why they're there because they love horses. So, the more that we can get those people engaged and involved, whether it's in the political arena or in a legislative arena, or I mean, the horse industry needs better representation everywhere, mm-hmm. and whether it's you know, journalists or doing what you do, podcasts, you need to have um, knowledgeable people that can articulate what you're just like you said, how much we love these horses and, and how much time and blood, sweat and tears this industry devotes to their care. And, but that the, the flip side of that is the general public and the general public doesn't see that. And more and more as, there are groups who are advocating for, you know, animal rights, and this. It they they the general public loses the um, the ability to listen to a balanced perspective when they they come to hear, you know, rhetoric that is extreme about making horses run. You know, it it just it's hard, and so it's really two different messages. But that being said, if the people who are advocating for horse and in, for the horse industry are sincere and honest and i think that's a huge asset to us and and as time goes by um you know we need to get young people engaged on every level and and there's competition for their interest and their time and and again my fear is they don't understand that they can actually make a career of it yeah they think just as i did when i stopped riding showing horses i thought well i'm never going to make a living showing horses i'm never going to make a living boarding horses what can i do and it just happened that i landed here at the horse breeders but i want that not to just happen i want that to be something where somebody says hey i'm a you know art major with a graphic design degree what where does that where can i fit into the horse industry somewhere or um, you know, there's just so many opportunities, and yeah. that's what I'm afraid is getting lost. Not lost, but I think we have to reiterate it and then articulate that same thing in an in an outreach arena to the politicians and to you know show them that the industry is not just the backstretch. You know, the, the, those jobs are important. I'm not taking sure. anything yep. away from that, yep. but um, there's a whole another layer of economic driving and commitment that is out there. That type of commitment and dedication to the sport show up in many different ways. I don't know about you, but it feels like every time I turn on a race from Laurel Racecourse, I'm looking at a full field. In other words, a better's delight. 
There's a lot of reasons for that, and they run all the way through the bodies that represent the sport down to the individual owners and trainers in Maryland. It's an ongoing effort, but one that has worked successfully in Maryland because of the various players' commitment to the sport. We talk about, in the sport the last few years, the declining foal population, but every time I pick up the past performances for Laurel Racecourse, I see 11 and 12 horse fields in there. So, you know, and, and I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but 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 the short, short field at Laurel is a rarity, I would say. Um, and and I think the, the betters like full fields, and I think the track management likes full fields. What is it that is going on at Laurel, do you think, that, that makes that happen? Because quite frankly, you know, I mean, I'm out here in Southern California right now. The, the five-horse field is much more common. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think we're struggling all the states and nationally for foals. I mean, the, you know, the national foal numbers have dropped dramatically, and you know that's a foster. I mean, a, a result of you know consolidation and sort of contraction in the industry. But Maryland again, and we've done that. Our foal numbers have dropped over the years, and it's really become. Um, closely tied with the economics in the in the industry wherever you are if there's if the purses are good and the incentives are good for breeders people will race there and i think that we do that here in maryland we 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 excuse me we reworked the incentive program here to try to have competitive breeder and stallion bonuses a few years ago to be competitive with pennsylvania because we were not very competitive and um that helps. So we're looking, actually, we just had a meeting today and, you know, Maryland breads in March were winning at a 47% clip and 40% of the horses that, that, that run in the races, at least in the past few months have been Maryland breads. So the Maryland breads are a significant, uh, important part of those fields here in Maryland. And thankfully the the racing secretary and the Strana group get it. So when we advocate and we need help promoting, you know, needs to get people to breed more Maryland breads, they are all over it. But I think you have to incentivize people. And I think we do that. And then the horses have to stay here. People in Maryland, I think that breed horses, they, they like to see their horses run. So they're not maybe as likely to ship to Florida for the winter or something like that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure they do with, they're top horses maybe, but they want to see their horses run. So they're going to stay here and run when, you know, the rest of the population may have gone south for the winter. And um, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a regional feel, but yet we have a very, you know, Maryland centric group of people here that want to want to fold here and want to see their horses run. You know how sometimes you end up falling into something career-wise? Like you miss a meeting and you end up getting assigned that project? Or your boss doesn't feel like attending, so they send you instead? Let Cricket tell you about how she got involved with Jim McKay, Maryland Million Day. Cricket, if you don't mind, um, you know, you are now the executive director of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association. How did you end up coming to that position in your career? Uh, actually, I'm I'm the executive director of both the Maryland Horse Breeders Association and the Maryland Million. And I... Um, came to that position actually I've been in the horse playing with horses loving horses riding horses all my life pretty much and did that for many many years and then worked at the racetrack and you know just sort of did a little bit of everything with horses and primarily thoroughbreds actually because when I was showing horses thoroughbreds were the were the horses everybody showed but and then I ended up working on a farm in Maryland doing marketing for a breeding farm and that was in 1985, I guess. And 
that at that time the Breeders Cup had just started, had just run and the the sort of brainchild of the Maryland Million was floating around in Maryland. Jim McKay had come back here and um with an idea and he was visiting they were visiting all the third all the breeding farms, all the stallion farms because they needed buy in from those farms and one of the farms where I worked was a stallion farm. And to tell you the truth, a lot of the stallion farms were skeptical, to say the least. And so I sort of got the, the uh, duty of going to lunch with this guy, you know, who's going to come talk about the Maryland Million. And, and the owner of the farm said, you go talk to him. <laughs> so I did. And uh, it was such an interesting concept. I got so excited about it. You know, I'd been to the Breeders' Cup. I actually went to the first Breeders' Cup. And so oh, wow. um, oh, great. That, that enthusiasm carried over into Maryland. And I just, I really loved the idea it, because... I don't know how long you've been around it, but at the time the Breeders' Cup happened or was in the works, that was a huge new Mm -hmm. idea. Yes, it was. And the same thing with Maryland Million. I mean, it was just, it was a great new concept. And so, long story short, I, not too long after that conversation, quit my job at the farm and worked for Maryland Million before in the planning stages. And and that, I wasn't quite a volunteer, but I was sort of like, you know, I want to come work. So they were paying me, but I was not, um, you know, very, there wasn't much money around when Maryland <laughs> yeah. was first. Yeah. Started, so. You weren't retiring but on the, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Horse Breeders Association was a big part of that because the Maryland Million did not have a budget. So the Horse Breeders Association was sort of charged with being the office, you know, for the Maryland Million concept. And Rich Wilkie, who came to run the Horse Breeders, was also the first executive director for Maryland Million. So I worked for Rich. And then after the first event, I I started full-time with the Maryland Horse Breeders. And basically doing everything, doing uh, special events, public outreach, education type things, because I had been working on Maryland Million. But, But the Maryland Million was my impetus and my main interest in the beginning because I just thought it was great. Um, so that's how I ended up where I am today, actually. Um, just loving horses. And I did not have a, uh, I actually went back to school and finished a degree in communications once I was working for the horse breeders, but, um, I did not have a plan to end up doing what I'm doing. It, it came to me and, you know, at a good time, it was in a good time, a good place at a good time. Well, you know, uh, Cricket, in my experience, people who have a plan about their careers end up in something different, and you might as well not have a plan. <laughs> That's my experience, right? I really appreciated talking with Cricket and getting her insights into what makes Maryland Racing so unique. Of course, one of the unique events on the Maryland Racing calendar is this Saturday's Jim McKay Maryland Million Day. Jim's daughter, Mary McManus-Guba, joined us to talk about how her dad adopted Maryland as his home state but also adopted its people and its culture, while providing valuable contributions of his own to all three. The Maryland Million contribution came about, you'll hear, not only from Jim, but from his beloved wife, Margaret. Jim McKay didn't come from Maryland originally, but he certainly adopted it after moving there as a young man. Now, he was not born in Maryland, but he really did adopt Maryland as his home, didn't he? Oh, uh, totally. He was born outside of Philadelphia, in a little area called Overbrook, which I guess is on the main line of Philly. And my grandfather, his father, ended up uh, going to work for the government in D.C., and so they needed to move, and that's when they moved down to Maryland. And he was about, I think, around 12 or 13 when he moved to Maryland, and he just fell in love with the state, the people, 
the everything about it. And I think so many of his great moments in his life, like meeting my mother, uh, happened in Maryland. That for him, it just it was his home, as far as he was concerned. He always had a little heartstring for Philadelphia, but Maryland was absolutely his adopted home state, no question. In fact, he not only adopted it, but he embraced all things Maryland, including the horse-centered culture Cricket described, working with one of the leading lights of Maryland racing. As excited as Jim McKay was about his friend Billy Boniface winning the Preakness, you can imagine his excitement when a horse they bred together won a Maryland Million race, particularly when you realize the horse's name and namesake. Uh, Mary, he actually bred and raised horses himself. Is that correct also? Well, he did, yes. It was a small operation. Yeah. That's, my, <laughs> that's my mother speaking. It was a small operation. <laughs> There's mom, uh, okay. Yeah. Billy Boniface was their trainer. And uh, Billy, no stranger to Maryland horse racing by any stretch. Wonderful man and his wife, Joan. Just two very terrific people. And uh, yeah, they had a couple of horses that did well. Uh, several, I should say. And uh, they actually had a horse, Sean's Ferrari, named for my brother, that won a uh, Maryland Million race uh, in 1987. And uh, unfortunately, I was living in California at the time, so I wasn't there. But um, my cousins were there, and, and it was just mayhem on the stand. Dad was beside himself. And uh, oh, needless to say, that's yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they had a bunch of horses, several horses. Um, I can't remember all the names and some got claimed in stakes races and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, they had a lot of fun with it. Um, but it was never a big money thing for them. It was really just more about the love of it and being a part of it. Jim's partnership and friendship with Billy Boniface, as well as Chick Lang from Pimlico, led directly to the founding of Maryland Million Day now named after Jim, of course, but not without a major assist from Jim's beloved wife, Margaret. Mary, you know, his, his love of Maryland racing, I know he, he worked with Billy Boniface and I believe Chick Lang to set up the Maryland Million program, which mm -hmm. is now actually named after him, correct? That's right. That's right. Sandy Rosenberg brought that to the Maryland legislature to change the name back in 2008 or nine, and it was unanimous, unanimously voted to do that. And they officially changed it as of 2009, I think it was. Yeah. And he, I think it was re, uh, uh, Cricket Goodall with the, the horse breed, right. Maryland horse breed, has mentioned to me that it was going to the Breeders' Cup that gave him the idea for right. Maryland Million Absolutely. as well, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. She's 100% right. They were flying back, mom and dad. See, mom's an intricate part of this story, so I have yeah. to keep throwing her in here. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, that's great. Yeah. She, dad and mom were flying back from the Breeders' Cup. And dad said, gee, you know, Margaret, we really should have something like that in Maryland. And classic Margaret response, well, Jim, why don't you do it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and that, that the gauntlet is thrown down. Yeah. And um, dad, as I mentioned earlier, was a, not by nature an extrovert. And he was a shy man. <laughs> I mean, you know, he mom would bargain with prices and everything and someone would say well that would be a hundred dollars go okay <laughs> you know, he just uh wasn't comfortable doing things like that but in this case uh he had to go out and ask for money and uh even if it was something he believed in which he did uh, it was still very difficult for him uh but he did it and that's how he met his great friend matt devito who became a strong supporter and billy became one of his best friends and um, he and Billy and Chick Lang, and they got this thing going, got it off the ground. 
And uh, I guess the first running was what, 1986? Is that right? I first think Maryland that's right. Race? Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. So, and then of course he won a race in the uh, 87 Maryland Million, which was just terrific. So, yeah, that's how it started. It, sometimes these things are much simpler, <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're not these great stories, like you know, all this burning bush, trumpet flaring. It's just okay, Jim. Well, why don't you go do that? <laughs> the founders had a very specific intent to promote Maryland stallions and breeding, much like the intent of the Breeders' Cup. We'll let Cricket explain. And that's really what it turned into for many years—a showcase for stallions. And sometimes new stallions that would come in and the, you know, their two-year-olds would, would run their first crops and they would do well on Maryland Million Day, which would then translate into more business for those stallions in the next breeding season. The team that puts on Jim McKay Maryland Million Day works hard to make sure there is something in it for everyone. They create a fun atmosphere involving as many families and communities as possible that nevertheless seriously respect the better. Their success is borne out by the consistently large attendance and handle the day produces every year. Cricket, and Maryland Million Day, I believe, is annually the second biggest attendance and wagering day in Maryland, correct? It is. It's um, uh, Black Eyed Season Day is challenging us now, but it's, it, you know, if you, as far as Preakness, let's say Preakness and Black Eyed Season, Maryland Million Day has been. And, and the most, and I don't know what Mary said, but the most, I think the proudest thing that we at Maryland Million that have been here a long time is that it's still such a good event. I mean, it's after 30 years, 32 years, it's consistent. The handle, the attendance, the wagering, and it's very regional. It's a very Maryland feel. People that don't come to the races very often come, a lot of them, to Maryland Million every year because it's not as overwhelming as the Preakness. I mean, we get 20,000 people, which is makes Laurel feel full, but it's not so full that you can't get around. And that's, you know, I think people that, you know, you go to the Preakness once or twice and say you've been to the Preakness and then maybe, you know, you've had your experience and you want to go to a race where you can actually maneuver around. And we, we, um, we, you know, we have kids, we have a kids area, we have on track events between the races. So we have Clydesdales, and we have um, retired thoroughbreds that come back and do their thing. We have pony races. So that was the attempt to entertain fans who may not be, you know, regular racetrack goers, and they didn't know what to do with themselves for half an hour with the kids. And it's worked really well, and it's a relative, again, another relatively easy thing to do. Um, there's some sense that you don't want to distract betters during that time, but we're not trying to distract the betters. We're trying to entertain the fans who may not be, you know, betters or may not be as as hardcore betters as, as come out. So, well, let's face it, um, we're, we're trying to make betters out of some of these people, too. And the more fun that they have, and I think it's an important point, right? The more fun they have, the more likely they are to come back. Exactly. And, and the kids part of it, you can't dismiss that. I know people get upset about kids and racetracks, but the reality is uh, every one of us probably started or got an interest, and maybe not everyone, but most people that are still um, involved started with as children in some way. They went to the track with their uncle or, you know, their father, or they rode ponies. You know, it's just, there's a whole lot of growing up around the business that is important. Well, and what, what we do do with Maryland Million, which I don't think um, 
I don't know whether other tracks do it or not, but what we did do is that right from the beginning, in addition to attracting families, we invite the whole legislature, and it's a good time of year for them because it's the fall and they're not into the midst of the session here. We invite every ag group I can think of, the Maryland Department of Agriculture, the Farm Bureaus, the there's a leadership group in ag, and so all of those people get invited at no cost. And the thinking behind that, and I believe it has paid off, is that if they come out, these are people who probably aren't going to come any other time of the year, and if they come out and have a good time, then they're your advocates, they're your ambassadors. And that has happened. It certainly happened in the ag community. And some of them never come any other time of the year, but they come out there, and not only do they have a good time, but they see all their friends year after year. And then it's it's just really built very nicely. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is the opportunity to remember and honor people whose life and passing may only be noted by a few, but who, through their life's work and their example, inspired others. My personal opinion is that we make heroes too much of celebrities and athletes, ignoring some real heroes, some inspirations that are right next door from whom we can and do learn so much more than from some distant film or athletic luminaries who likely are nothing like the public image that has been built up around them. One such inspiration that came to me as I researched for this podcast was Joe Kelly. I'll let Cricket tell the rest. So, uh, Cricket, I'll leave you with just one last question here. I'm always fascinated by the people that have worked hard, sometimes um, laboring in near anonymity uh, to promote our sport. And, and I always like to see when they are remembered, you know, in, 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 in years as they have gone by. And in and, and doing my research on Maryland Million Day, I saw that you award the the Joe Kelly Unsung Hero Award every year. And I can I I, I stopped there because I wanted to hear, you know, from you about what Joe Kelly meant to Maryland racing. Because I would imagine to, to have an award named after you, he probably labored pretty hard at it. <laughs> Joe Kelly was one of my favorite people in the whole world. And, and I met him when I started working at the Horse Breeders, but he had been by that time um, a journalist working at newspapers throughout his career, and then he worked in public relations at Laurel under John Shapiro. He worked at Pimlico. He was just, he loved horse racing. He he gambled a little bit, but it wasn't um, his reason for being at the track. He just really loved horsemen and writing about horse stories. He 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 saw all of the important races, you know, he, he was 95 when he died. So, you know, any big race that you can think of in Maryland or in, on this, in this region, he saw, he was a very, very good friend of Jim McKay's. Um, and I think Jim recruited him early on to sort of help with brain power, you know, think about this, how do we do it? Um, and Joe worked with us at the Maryland million for, Till he died. I mean, he was the he was our publicist, is what we called him, because by that time he wasn't working at the papers anymore. And he was just a great guy. I mean, he loved it, and he was sincere and friendly, and I never said a bad word about anybody. So yes, when he died, um, there was a real sense that we carry on that good work and and acknowledge people who nobody's ever heard of in the industry, or very few people have heard of, or. And that's the goal. And I think that he would be very proud. He would, I have to say, he would not be happy with what's going on with this debate about Pimlico, though. He loved Pimlico and the Preakness, and he would be, he he, he would not want to see anything happen to that. And that, I've thought about that recently, because I think he spent a lot of time in the press box at Pimlico, and he had an, his own office there, even though he wasn't the 
you know, he wasn't the media relations guy, but um, he was the ambassador. The So he was a great guy, um, a good friend to all of us, a good friend to the industry, and we miss him. And we need, to be honest with you, we, I wish we had a few more people, a lot more people like him. But anyway, we try to carry on that memory and uh, and emulate him as we can over the years. Mary talked to us with that special sadness and warmth those who have lost a loved one have when she remembered the last time she attended Marilyn Million Day, the first time after it was renamed Jim McKay Marilyn Million Day. But it was always a family affair. Mary talked with us about the opportunities those of us who are a little bit older have to connect and bond with the multiple generations of our families. A special gift, much as Mary describes. So, uh, Mary, one last question, and we're going a little bit out of order here. But do you ever get to go to Marilyn Million Day? I have been to Maryland Million Day, uh, but the last time I went was actually the the day that they had changed the name, the year they changed the name to oh, the Jim McKay oh, Maryland Million. Yeah. So that was um, that was touching, and it, you know, it was only a little over a year and a maybe you know, a year and a half about after Dad passed away. So it had its mixed feelings, you yeah, know. It sure, was, I I really wished he could have been there because he would have been just so thrilled by that. Um, but I was there then. And really, the thing with Marilyn Million was kind of more dad and my son, James. They went all every year, oh, all okay. through the 90s. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean, that that was their thing. Yeah. Um, and James did a lot of things with dad. But the Marilyn Million was one big one. They did tended to tended to do by themselves. Oh, what so, a great bonding experience for yeah. grandson and, and grandfather. They were very close. Very, very close. Yeah. You know, you mentioned so, uh, you wish he could have been there that day, and it's probably going to sound mm, trite to say it, but I'm sure he was, actually. Uh, well, you know, it doesn't sound trite to me. I believe it. <laughs> I believe he was there, and my, I believe mom, uh, mom saw it all, too. So, you know, uh, it was uh, very important, very important. And I am so appreciative to Sandy Rosenberg for doing that. It was very, uh, well, he, he said to me, he said, Mary, it just was the right thing to do. And I said, well, that's very kind of you and means a lot. So, yeah. I have to say, listening to this interview over again as we prepared for this podcast, I was moved to tears again several times. Jim McKay was a special person to those of us who grew up with his presence at countless major sporting events over the years, but obviously, and not surprisingly, was a special person off camera too. I'm very excited about the opportunity to honor Jim in my own small way by attending my first Jim McKay Maryland Million Day this Saturday at Laurel Park. I hope to see you there. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll be back to talk to you again next week. In the meantime, may the horse be with you.